Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. All right, in the light. All right, cool. All right, I'm in the light. I'm in the light. Now, you guys are all dark. Great. Um, <laughs> in the video, I feel like uh, the, the images are just incredibly beautiful, and they capture the parable so well. The, the story of the wedding feast or the lost coin or the vines on the branches, and, and yet the music, does anyone feel like it's the start of a horror movie? Like, it's just a little ominous, right? Yeah, like a few of you have felt that. Yeah, that was actually very intentional. Um, Paul Romaglevitt, who's our technical director, um, he made that video. Yeah, give it up for Paul. He's awesome. And um, that, I think, captures, in essence, the tension that we feel in the parables and have felt in the parables. Because they're like, on face value, they're these beautiful stories of like a banquet or a wedding feast or a son who returns home. And yet when we dive deeper into them, they often leave us in this tension about how the kingdom of God actually works. And it leaves us in this space where we have to wrestle with, okay, if this is what Jesus says the kingdom is, if this is the values of the kingdom, then something within me is going to change. And that feels kind of ominous. And so I just thought he did such a great job with that video. I wanted to to call that out um, before we get going today. Um, Just like a disclaimer, on on weeks that I preach, um, preaching weeks I call them, I usually try to finish my sermon by like Thursday afternoon around five. And then I try to take Friday off and spend time with my family, um, Steffi and Camden, and just kind of give them the day and and do whatever we can together. Because I'm usually gone a lot Saturday and Sunday. And so it's a way we can kind of have one day off together. Um, And so I did that this week, um, except it was kind of a short week. Steffi was teaching a class. And so she was like, hey, you can work on Friday. It's fine. Don't feel bad about it. And so I worked a little bit in the morning. So I went to Starbucks, trying to wrap up my sermon so that I could get home, spend time with family. Um, And then I came in Saturday afternoon around 2.30 because I was feeling pretty good and like everything was kind of wrapped up. And I opened my computer and there was a red dot with an X through it next to the document that contained my sermon. I was like, "Uh uh-oh. And then I opened it and there was like nothing. The entire sermon was gone uh, yesterday afternoon, except for one line, um, the title of the introduction that I had typed on Tuesday morning, and the title of my introduction was Life's Not Fair. (laughs) And the irony was not lost on me. And I just started laughing, and I went home, and I grabbed my other computer, the one that I had had at Starbucks, and somewhere between like Starbucks Wi-Fi and the cloud, my sermon got lost. Um, And I was able to recover like a decent amount of it, but it kind of made for a fun Saturday afternoon. Um, And uh, yeah, and and that's the sermon I'm going with today. So um, the reason why I titled my introduction, Life's Not Fair, is because the parable we're looking at today, there's something inherently unfair about the story that we read. I mean, we're used to life that's supposed to work out in certain ways, right? Like from the time that we're all kids, we're told if you do the right thing, then you'll be rewarded. And if you do the wrong thing, then there will be consequences for that. And that's like how we teach children basic morality. And then we grow up and we realize that's not how the world works like at all. 
And oftentimes people who do the wrong thing get the promotion, or people who do the right thing get overlooked or ignored or maybe even punished because it like hurt the company or something like that. Like all of a sudden morality gets kind of flipped around and it doesn't quite work the way that we've expected or we've hoped. And so in order to teach us that lesson, my parents, they had the same when we were growing up. And, and any time something unfair happened, they would just say LNF. Life's not fair. It's not a curse word or anything. It was just this acronym for life's not fair. Now, usually that had something to do with who got to eat the last Pop-Tarts or like finished off the box of Lucky Charms. But it served as well as we grew up and coaches took away playing time that we thought we deserved or when we didn't get promotions or we didn't get into the school that we wanted or whatever it might be. Sometimes life is not fair. And in this parable today, that's what we have to wrestle with, is that life doesn't always work out the way that we want it to. Sometimes we do the right thing, and we're not rewarded for it. And sometimes people who do the wrong thing, or nothing at all, receive the benefit. And so that's the story that Jesus tells us today. So if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to open to Matthew chapter 20, because we're actually going to be hopping around a little bit to understand about this story. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd actually encourage you to go there um, and follow along with me in the text, because there's some context around this parable that we have to to look at to kind of understand how this parable works, because it leaves us in this tension between how we think the kingdom of God is supposed to work and how Jesus says the kingdom of God actually works. So picking up in verse 1 of chapter 20, Jesus begins this parable by saying this, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard, and he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Now, what you have to understand is, is offering to pay day laborers a denarius was it was like a very generous offer. Usually they'd make like about a sixth of that, and they couldn't negotiate the cost of what they were paying. They're just looking for work. And so a denarius, it's an incredibly generous offer. Then it goes on and says, about nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. And that word is whatever is just, whatever is like fair and whatever you deserve is what I will pay you. So that's the agreement that this landowner has with these day laborers he's just hired. And what we have to understand right off the bat is in this story, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, and he begins by comparing a a landowner who's really like the stand-in for God. Anytime you come to the parables and there's an owner or a king or a landowner, someone in important authority, it usually represents our heavenly father, the king of the kingdom. And so that's God. The question we have to ask is, who are the day laborers? Like, are they the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Or is it the disciples? Or is it really like all of Israel? Or is it the church? And a lot of people come to this parable and they'll maybe give one of those answers. But the problem is the parable doesn't actually tell us who Jesus is speaking to. And to understand who Jesus is speaking to, who this parable was intended for, we have to look at the context around it. And so if you have your Bibles open, what is the story that comes directly before this parable? If you flip back to chapter 19, Does anyone have it? And you can just shout out the story that you see, the title that comes right before this one. The rich young ruler. Exactly. So Jesus is teaching, and a rich young man, if you're familiar with the story, or even if you're not, I'll just give you kind of like the Sparknotes version. Anyone remember Sparknotes? Use that in school? Do you guys still use Sparknotes? 
cool, it's still around, awesome. We've got our high school down here today. Um, Okay, so SparkNotes version of this story is basically that Jesus is teaching and a rich young man comes to Jesus and says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why, why do you ask me what good thing you must do? There's only one who is good, but if you want eternal life, then, then follow the commandments. And he's like, well, which ones? And he says, well, Jesus responds, well, you know, don't steal, don't murder, don't lie, don't commit adultery, all the big stuff. Like just love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man looks at Jesus and he says, I, I, I've done all of that, but I feel like something is missing. Like I've followed all the rules. I've done all the things I know I'm supposed to. I, I've refrained from doing all the things that I know I'm not supposed to do. And I feel like something is still missing in my life. And so Jesus looks at him and with compassion says, well, if you really want to be whole, then sell everything you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me. And then you'll have what you're looking for. And it tells us that this man went away sad because he loved his earthly possessions. He didn't want to give up everything that he had attained in this world. And so he went away sad. And Jesus has this, this great line about how difficult it is for those who have a lot in this world to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's tougher for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for the wealthy to come into my kingdom. And Peter and the disciples, they hear this and they're like, that, that's crazy. Like, what does that even mean? And Jesus says, well, to enter my kingdom, you have to give up everything. And Peter sees his moment and he says, oh, I've done that. Jesus, like, Jesus, look at us. We, we've given up everything to follow you. So what do we get? What will be our reward for giving up everything to follow you? And Jesus says, for the people who give up everything, who give up family, who give up wealth, who give up material possessions, they will enter my kingdom and have eternal life. And then he concludes this teaching by saying, the last will be first and the first shall be last. And then we have the parable. Now look in scripture and what is the story that directly like comes after the parable of the vineyard workers? Does anyone have it? Jesus predicts his death. Is that what you said? So, yep. Okay, Jesus predicts his death. And then what's the story that comes directly after that? A mother's request, which is just like this amazing story. So Jesus has just told all of his disciples, hey, I'm about to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. They are going to kill me and crucify me on the cross. And James and John, hearing that, two of his closest disciples, they send their mom to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, like we know you said something about dying and stuff, but... Like, hey, when, when you conquer the kingdom, when you come into your power, when you receive authority, could my boys, like, be at your right and left hand? Like, could they be, like, the people who are in charge with you? I mean, totally missing the plot. But if you think about the way this story is laid out, we have a story about how the disciples ask, what will we receive for following you? And then at the end, we have a story of the disciples saying, like, hey, how good is it going to be? What can we get for following you. And in between those two stories, sandwiched in between, is the story of this parable. And it seems to me that Jesus is, is directing this teaching towards his disciples and their attitudes about the kingdom of God. Are you with me? You see that? And so what does Jesus say to his disciples? This is a parable that he is directing directly to them and their attitudes about the kingdom. 
So the story goes on, and he says, he went out again at about noon and about three in the afternoon, and he did the same thing. He hired more workers. And about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around, and he asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? And they responded, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. So you have to understand that in this time period, the, the Jewish day kind of revolved around two 12-hour blocks. A, a day was 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., and then evening or night was 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And so this vineyard owner, he goes out at the very like earliest sunrise of the morning, and he hires people to come work in their, his vineyard, promises them a denarius if they will work in the vineyard all day, and he'll pay them whatever's right. Then he goes back at 9 a.m., and then again at noon, and then at 3, and then at 5 p.m., the 11th hour of the day, and hires more and more people to work in the day. And he doesn't, doesn't have any agreement with the others about what he'll pay them. The only people that he's promised anything to is the people at the very beginning of the day, a denarius if they'll work in his vineyard for the entire day. And so the story goes on, and it says in verse 9, I'm oh, sorry, in verse 8, when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired, going on to the first. And the workers who were hired about five in the afternoon, they came and each received a denarius. And so when those who came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said. And you have made them equal to us who bore the burden of the work in the heat of the day. So they're frustrated. They're angry because for some reason this landowner has decided to pay everyone the exact same wage. And it's a little bit of a weird story because the, the landowner, he de deliberately says, hey, go to the people we hired last, go to the people who only worked for an hour and pay them a denarius in full view of everyone else who's worked. Like if the landowner just came back and said like, hey, we're just going to pay those who came first and let them go on their way and then just pay people as they came throughout the day, like no one would be none the wiser. And yet it seems like this deliberate tact to, to create this grumbling and this bitterness and this, this expectation that we're going to receive even more. You have to ask, why would he go about it that way? What would be in it to, to, to create this kind of calculated bitterness that the people feel? And we have to, I mean, we all understand this scenario. Like, like all of us have seen the person who barely does anything receive a reward that they don't deserve. I mean, if you think about it, you've been at the company 20 years, and then all of a sudden this, this young person who just graduates college, suddenly they're making the exact same pay as you and getting just as much vacation time. You're like, this isn't right. Or invert that, and for young people, you're just hired at a place, and you think you see the person who's been there for 20 years and barely does anything at all and just gets a free pass because they've been at the company for so long. I mean, we're used to situations where life is not fair, where it doesn't turn out the way that we think it's supposed to. So we identify with the workers in the story. But their real complaint is not just that they didn't get paid more, what do they say? They say, you have made them equal to us. 
See, if you remember the, the, the workers who were hired at the end of the day, at the 11th hour at 5 p.m., why do they say that they are not working? They say, no one has hired us. No one wanted them. They're the people who, when you're playing dodgeball or basketball and you're picking teams, they're, they're the one who is picked last. And you know when you're picked last in that scenario that it's not because they actually want you on the team. It's because you're all that was left. And though, that's those people. And these people who have labored all day long, they look at them and say, you, you, you made us just like the people that no one wants, the, the people that no one would hire because they can't complete the job for whatever reason. You value our work, our labor, the exact same way as them? That's not fair at all. They're angry and they grumble, which feels like a fair criticism. And, and when you think of this story, it, yeah, we see that kind of scenario all the time. But what ruffles our feathers about this story is that, that Jesus seems to be saying, this is how God works. Like if God is the landowner, it's not just that life is not fair. It's that God seems to work in the world in a way that, that really does not align with our idea of what is just and fair and right. There's one thing if our employer treats us unfairly. It's another thing if God treats us unfairly. And so in response to the grumbling and the complaints, this is what the owner says. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. If I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you, don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am so generous? You see, there's actually not any unfairness going on in the story. As unfair as it seems to us, no one didn't receive what they were promised. No one was treated unfairly. Everyone received what they were promised they would receive. It's just some who were undeserving received more than they were promised. And that feels like an injustice to us. And then Jesus concludes this parable by saying, so the last will be first and the first will be last. It's the same thing he said to Peter after Peter said, hey, what do I get for following you? And so it seems like these two stories are intricately linked. And so what is Jesus trying to tell us about the nature of the kingdom and the nature of the king? Is it really just that, you know, the kingdom's just as unfair as this world, so don't get your hopes up that anything will be different? I think there's something deeper going on. And I think what Jesus is getting at is sometimes the king of the kingdom seems like he's unfair, but he is always good. And the reason why I say the king is always good is because that last question the landowner asks, he says, are you envious because I'm so generous? But, but that word generous is actually in the New Testament 15 times, and this is the only time it's translated as generous and not as good. In fact, in the previous story, when the rich young ruler says, what good thing must I do? And Jesus says, you can't do anything good. There's only one who is good. It's the exact same word. And it seems as if Jesus is saying that, that God in his kingdom, 
Even though sometimes things seem unfair and not to work out the way we expect them to, God is always incredibly generous and good. And it's not just a goodness that's dependent on how he's been treated or or how hard we've worked or what we've sacrificed. His goodness is inherent to his nature. It's just who he is, which let's be honest. When I look at my own life, that's not how my goodness operates. Like usually my goodness is very dependent on like how much sleep I had the night before, right? (laughs) Or like how I've been treated by someone or whether or not I think they deserve my good attitude or good behavior. But not God. God is inherently good. It's just within his nature. And the type of generosity and goodness we see in this story is unlike anything this world has ever experienced before. Because let's also be honest, when we talk about generosity, when we talk about a generous tip, We usually don't give the most generous tip to the waiter or waitress who just did a terrible job, right? It's if they earned it. And and when we go through life, we expect the amount of effort we put out to, to reap the reward of the effort and sacrifice that we've put out. That's how our world functions. Even at the it's most generous, our world's generosity is always about earning. It's always tied to some sort of bonus system. And it seems to me what Jesus is saying in this parable is that that is not the way that God works. His generosity, his goodness is not dependent upon what we do. But because the world operates that way, we apply that to God and we think that that's what we need. It's why the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what good thing must I do to get eternal life from God? It's why the disciples say, hey, we followed everything. What can we get from following God? Because many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we we have this paradigm in our relationship with God that, that theologians call moralistic, therapeutic deism. And what I mean by that is we have this idea that, that in general, we should just be a good person and act in basically moral ways. And if we do that, our, our faith and our religion, it, the whole purpose of it is actually meant to make us feel better about ourselves, to feel good and to feel happy. And, and it's tied to God because there's some sort of God who's out there in some sort of vague sense. And if we do all of those things right, if we enter into this contract with God, this is how our view of God kind of functions. This is how this contract works. Is if I am good, that's my role in the contract. I'm just supposed to follow the rules. I'm supposed to pray. I'm supposed to show up at church. I'm supposed to give. I'm supposed to do all the things that God asked me to do. And if I'm good, then God owes me happiness in return. He'll make my life better. And if I'm not happy, or if tragedy strikes, that means one of two things. Either I failed to be good enough, and so God is punishing me, or God failed to be good, and he's not holding up his end of the contract. I mean, have you ever been there in life? Where where, where let's say tragedy strikes, something happens, life's not fair in some way. And you immediately go to the place of like, oh my gosh, what sin did I commit? Like, like, why is God angry at me right now? Why are these things happening in my life? Because I did something wrong. Or we go the other way. And something happens in our life that it's not supposed to. And we say, God, how could you allow this in my life? 
how could you not be good? I believe your scripture, it says that you're good, and I'm not experiencing that right now. So something's gone wrong in the contract. That's the way so many of us operate in our relationship with God. But what Jesus seems to be saying in this parable is that the kingdom of God doesn't work that way. The grace and generosity and goodness of God is not about what you deserve. It's not about what you've earned. It's not tied to some sort of bonus system based on how much you've sacrificed or how much you've given away or how much you've given to the kingdom. All the goodness, all the grace is solely based on the character and nature of the king. The story is not about the vineyard workers. It's about the owner of the vineyard. See, what I think Jesus is trying to tell us about the grace of God and about the nature of the kingdom and about the values of the kingdom is that God is exceedingly generous with his grace. And we kind of can miss that with a misleading title because we call it the parable of the vineyard workers, but it's about the owner. It's not about what the workers do or don't do. It's about what the owner does. It's about the grace that he shows to the people who have worked for him. See, the kingdom of God is a place where, where everyone gets what they were promised, but some get much more than they deserve. That is a beautiful thing. Except for most of us, it's often not. Like, it's so fascinating to me that when we read this story, like how quickly we identify with the workers who were hired first. Like, right? Like, none of us read this story. I'm, I'm yet to come across someone who reads this story and identifies with the person who was hired last and sees, man, what good news. Like, I don't deserve this at all. We all inherently go to the place where it's like, yeah, I was hired first. I deserve. I'm owed. This isn't fair. But let's be honest with ourselves. Like, if we want to get into that pecking order and we want to be honest about who was actually hired first, like, it's probably none of us in this room, right? I mean, that's like the Billy Grahams of the world. It's the Mother Teresas. It's the Martin Luther King Juniors, the people who have like sacrificed everything. And if we want to get into the, the hierarchy of it all, like our sacrifices are, I mean, they're incomparable with some of those people. And yet the good news of this story is that we're actually all the last workers hired. That, that God's grace is for all of us. And in fact, to even make comparisons about ourselves and like Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, it misses the point entirely. See, Jesus, when he summarizes the parable, he says the first will be last and the last will be first. And I think we tend to think that like the people who are at the front of the line go to the back and the people who are in the back of the line get to go to the front. It's like when you're playing line leader as a kid and you just like fight and hustle to get to the front of the line in the kindergarten class. And the teacher's like, nope, sorry, you wanted that too bad, so you have to go to the back. Right? But I don't think when Jesus is saying that it's about hierarchies or first or last. It's Jesus is saying that it's all leveled. It's not just about like the first getting reversed to last place and the last becoming first. It's, it's Jesus saying that in the kingdom of God, everything is level at the foot of the cross. It's all grace. It's all a gift. None of it is anything that any of us deserve. 
And the question is, does that kind of grace, does that kind of grace make us grateful? Or like the workers in the story, do we begin to grumble? Do we think that it's not fair? Do we think that there's some injustice in the kingdom of God? You see, I think at the heart of this story is an invitation for us to rejoice in the goodness of God, the goodness that's not dependent on our actions or what we do or don't do. It's the goodness that's dependent on the character and nature of the king of the kingdom. See, it's why in the story with the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he says, what good thing must I do? What can I do to earn my place in your kingdom? What works can I complete? What would you have me do that I might receive your goodness and grace? And what is Jesus' response? Nothing. The only one who is good is the king. And it's on his goodness, his character, that you are welcomed in. And if you will give up everything that gets in your way of that truth, of following that king, then you will find what you're looking for. You will receive the completeness and wholeness that you're longing for. And so today, in your relationship with God, do you feel like there's something more you have to do? Is there some sin in your life that you feel like is just clinging to you and you can't let go of fast enough in order to earn God's grace? It's all a mute point. God's goodness and grace is a gift that we receive whether we were hired at six in the morning or five in the evening. It's all grace. Would you rejoice in that good news this morning and pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, for anyone who's in this space today, and God feels the tension of this parable, feels the tension of, well, yeah, but I feel like I. And God, we can go negative or positive with that kind of speech. We can think that there's something we've done that makes us better than others or, or that something we've done that makes us irredeemable. And yet the good news of this story is that in Jesus, in his kingdom, goodness is not dependent on what we've done or accomplished. It's not dependent on our achievements or our position. It's solely based on the goodness of God. May we believe that. May that change our hearts. May your Holy Spirit convict us and encourage us to live in that truth. Amen.